The following sermon is brought to you by Capital Community Church, located in Raleigh, North Carolina. Capital Community Church is a people awakened to a holy God. If you are searching for a new church home, or from out of town looking for a church to worship with, or simply seeking for answers, please join us for worship at 1045 a.m. every Sunday morning and 6 o'clock p.m. for our evening service. If you have any questions, please email us at info at We pray this sermon will help you grow deeper in your walk with Jesus Christ. Good evening and welcome to the evening service at Capital Community Church. Tonight we are continuing our study in Reformation Theology with our final study, The Perseverance of the Saints. Now, before we begin, let's go to the Lord of God in prayer. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would bless our time, that you would illuminate the word to our minds, and that you would speak through me in the power of the Holy Spirit. We ask this for Christ's sake. Amen. Perseverance of the saints is a, a really important doctrine that was illuminated in the Reformation because one of the things, as we've emphasized is that the reformers said that salvation is by grace alone. It's according to faith, apart from works, and God works salvation from beginning to end, that God initiates salvation, and because God initiates salvation, God is the one who finishes salvation. Ephesians 2.8 says, "'For by grace you have been saved.'" Through faith, it is a gift of God, not of works, so no one can boast. And the Reformers emphasize that if God gives you the gift of salvation, that once that gift is given, God does not take it back. It is not a revocable gift. It is a gift that is freely given. Once you possess eternal life, you cannot lose it. Because if you, uh, on the basis of, of the reality of what it is, if you possess eternal life, it would be impossible to lose because then you would never have had it to begin with. But what Rome teaches, what Rome taught, is that you were regenerated in the waters of baptism. That's when you are saved. And your faith works with good works through love, in order for you to be justified. But really at any point, if you commit what Rome calls a mortal sin, mortal means death, a deathly sin, then you can forfeit your salvation. So if you commit murder, adultery, if you blaspheme Christ, uh, any number of things Rome considers mortal sins. If you commit one of those sins, then your salvation is lost and you need to be saved again. And you go through a, a series of, of penance and, and things like that, but the church can restore you again to salvation. And the reformers obviously pushed back against this and said, no, once you are saved, your salvation can never be lost. Well, about a hundred years or so after the Reformation, the Reformation went to the Netherlands and and spread all throughout Europe. But in the Netherlands, a man by the name of Jacob Arminius arose, and he had a number of followers. And Arminius said, "Well, 
yes, we are saved by faith, but this faith isn't necessarily completely initiated by grace. God does his part, and we also do our part. And therefore, since we cooperate with grace on the front end, we can cooperate with grace on the back end. And if we choose to forego our faith, to renounce our faith, then we can also lose our salvation. So this is a Protestant teaching that a Christian can lose their salvation. And the great John Wesley believed this, and I love John Wesley. John Wesley was a great evangelist in the Great Awakening, very influential, started the Methodist movement in England and America. But Wesley, till the day he died, believed that you could lose your salvation. My great uncle, Antoine Valdetero, who was the, the Cajun pastor in Louisiana that influenced me so much. I have much of his library now in my library, many of his books. Uh, you know, I, I go through his books and I'll see in the margins notes where he is talking about the believer losing his salvation. I was teaching over in Ukraine in a Bible college over there. This was before the war and all that. And I was teaching on this doctrine and there was a ruckus in the classroom. 20, verily, uh, 20 very enthusiastic Ukrainians begin arguing that you can lose your salvation. And I bring this up because this is a, a debate that we have with other Christians. Other Christians, people who believe in Christ, that he is the only Savior who have trusted in his death, burial, and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins, these people uh, hold to this idea that you can lose your salvation. Contrary to that, I believe, one, that that's unbiblical, but two, I believe in the doctrine of perseverance of the saints. Perseverance of the saints. And I want to begin tonight by asking a series of questions and answering them, because I think that's the best way to navigate this topic. And the first question that we need to look at is, what is the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints? So if you're taking notes, that's the first question. What is the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints? This is the doctrine. If a child of God is saved by the grace of God through faith, they will continue in faith to the end and never forfeit their salvation. If a child of God is saved by grace, they will continue in faith to the end and they will never forfeit their salvation. One of my seminary professors, Sean Wright, said, quote, because God has sovereignly saved his people, he will keep them for all eternity as his beloved children, end quote. I want to show you this from several scriptures. I want you to turn to the book of Philippians. Chapter 1, verse 6. Philippians 1, 6, Paul says, I am sure of this. I am sure of this that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So Paul says, look, if God began the work of salvation in you, 
I am confident of this. He will bring it to completion. What's the day of Jesus Christ? That's when he returns. That's when salvation is final. Christ will bring it to completion. Turn to the right, or sorry, to the left, to John chapter six. Verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. You see the doctrine of election there at the beginning of verse 37, those that the Father gives to me. He says, those will come to me, those will be called to me. And Jesus says, I will never cast out. That phrase, I will never cast out, is synonymous with reprobation. He says, they will never be cast out. They will not be judged. They will not be damned. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. So Christ says, those whom the Father gives to him, those who believe in him, not one of them will be lost. He will lose nothing, but he will raise them up on the last day. Turn to the right to John chapter 10, verse 28. This is the Good Shepherd discourse where Jesus is talking about his sheep. He says, I give them eternal life. Question, once you have eternal life, can you lose eternal life? No, because then you did not have it to begin with, because it's eternal. And he says, and they will never perish. And look at this language. No one will snatch them out of my hand. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Okay, look how he ups the ante. My father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. Is anybody greater than God? No. No one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. So that's the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. It's that in God's power, in God's power, that's why, that's why it's so certain that no Christian will lose their salvation. No Christian will fall away. No Christian will lose their salvation. No one is powerful enough to escape God's hand. I once heard John MacArthur said, say, if you could lose your salvation, you would. You would fall away. If it was up to you, we would fall away. If it was up to our willpower and our strength, we would fall away. But it's not. Ultimately, it belongs to the power and might of God that he keeps us. Jot down this verse, 1 Peter 1.5. Peter says, by God's power, you are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. By God's power, you are being guarded through faith. This is eternal security, that God guards you through faith so that you will never forfeit your salvation. And I praise God for this truth. I praise God for this. I don't wake up in the morning wondering, 
could the day I stumble and lose it all? If I didn't believe this, I would wake up every single day and think, Did I, am I going to lose my salvation today? Or I would wake up thinking, did I lose it yesterday or last week? And every time I come to church, I'm thinking, am I in or am I out? Am I in or am I out? Am I bearing fruit or am I not? And, and all of these internal spiritual complexities, I honestly don't know how Arminians do it. Because it's, it's such a... Um, non-comforting idea that I could just forfeit my Christianity, that I could just someday choose to renounce Christ. Spurgeon, let me give you a quote from Spurgeon. He said, Our Arminian friends say that you may be a child of God today and a child of the devil tomorrow. Write out that statement and place it, place at the bottom of it the name Arminian. And then he says this, put the scrap of paper in the fire. It is the best thing you can do with it, for there is no truth in it. Jesus says, whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. If you're a Christian, you will always be a Christian. You can never lose your salvation. Second question, why do we call this the doctrine of perseverance of the saints? So the first question, what is the doctrine of perseverance of the saints? Second question, why do we call it the doctrine of perseverance of the saints? Why don't we call it, as sometimes I've heard in Baptist circles, once saved, always saved? Have you ever heard that? Once saved, always saved? It's true. Once saved, you're always saved. That's true. But the reason why we use the, the, the language of perseverance of the saints is because it's more specific. It's more exact. It's more technical. Because one of the, the cultural things that has happened, especially in this country with revivalism, is that people think, okay, because I walked an aisle, because I went down to the front at a Billy Graham crusade because I signed a card that said I was a Christian or maybe I identified as a Christian to a pollster who came to my door. Therefore, I've chosen to become a Christian. Therefore, I cannot lose my salvation. But one of the issues is, is that many of those types of people have what is called a spurious faith or uh, a fraudulent faith. It's not genuine faith. So we talk about perseverance of the saints to identify what type of faith we're actually talking about. What type of faith is guaranteed to be eternally secure? And there's all types of texts that say that the true Christian, once they begin to believe they will always believe. That doesn't mean that they won't have doubts. That doesn't mean that they won't sin. That doesn't mean that they won't have bad days. But they will continue in faith all the way to the end. That is what it means to persevere. It means to keep going, right? So the faith that is eternally secure keeps going all the way to 
the end. Jot down these verses, Matthew 10, 22, Matthew 24, 13. They're, they're both the same. Jesus says, the one who endures to the end will be saved. Jot down this verse, John 8, 31. Jesus says, if you abide in my word, that means remain. If you remain in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So there is this remaining in the teaching of Christ that proves that we have authentic, genuine faith. I want you to turn over to the right to the book of 1 John. 1 John chapter 3, beginning in verse 4. John is contrasting the true Christian with the professing false believer. Notice what he says. I'm not going to do exegesis. I'm just going to read it and make a couple comments. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. So he says, look at the pattern of somebody's life. Look at the pattern of their life. Not, we're not saying anybody's sinless. We're saying look at, the, look at the broad landscape of their life. If anybody has a perpetual practice of sinning, he says that is lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. He says, you know that he, Christ, appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. Listen, no one who abides in him, no one who remains in him, no one who keeps going in faith, keeps on sinning. Again, he's talking about the practice of habitual sin. He's not saying that you don't commit singular sins. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. Do you see there the work of God? The work of uh, the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer keeps them. He's disciplined when, when he sins, when she sins. And they, they return in confession and repentance. They don't make a practice of sinning. They cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Verse 10, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So Jesus is saying here, or John is saying here very clearly, very clearly, that the true Christian keeps on believing and practices righteousness. So this is not... Easy beliefism. There is a necessity of perseverance. I grew up in a culture that said if somebody, if you made a profession of faith along the line, that it was a guaranteed deal. That it was a guaranteed deal. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that you can have a false profession of faith that not all claims of faith are true claims, but you will recognize the true claims by their fruit. The key in this understanding, I think, is to understand, even in this passage, is that God keeps true Christians. If you uh, turn to Philippians, I want you to turn here because this is a really important 
verse that describes the work of perseverance in our life and how God is working through it. So Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So that's keep on believing. Keep fighting the fight of faith. Keep bearing fruits of righteousness. This, this is the process of sanctification. He says, keep working out your own salvation. But then he says, verse 13, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So God is working. God is arousing you from your spiritual slumber at times. God is working to sanctify you. God is disciplining you when he needs to. God is at work in your life so that you keep believing, you keep bearing fruit, and ultimately, God is the one who keeps you from falling away. So we're working, but God is working, keeping, growing, teaching, discipling. So Paul, it's, also, it's often struck me, you know, at the end of 2 Timothy, Paul says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Therefore, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, but not for me only. It's for all those who love his glorious appearing, all those who are Christians, all those who look to the return of Christ and await him. And that is, the, that is the heart and that is the cry of every Christian in the end, is that you have fought the good fight, finished the race, and kept the faith by the grace of God because God has kept you. Third question, what about the apostate? What about the apostate, the professor who claims to be a Christian, is baptized, joins the church, and then suddenly, either morally or intellectually, walks away from the church, walks away from the faith? What about Judas? What about Saul in the Old Testament? This is a very real reality. I know we know people like this, perhaps in our own families. We've had people baptized in this tank right behind me who no longer even claim to be a Christian. What about people like that? I want to show you this reality in Matthew chapter 13. This is probably next to the prodigal son in Luke 15, one of the most famous parables. It's certainly, I think, one of the most important parables for understanding the kingdom and the nature of true saving faith. Jesus begins teaching in parables in Matthew 13. This is the first parable in Matthew's gospel. And he explains how the kingdom works. Look at verse 3. A sower went out to sow. 
The sower is the evangelist. The seed that the sower sows is the good news. It's the message of the gospel. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, but notice what happens. And immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were, not, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now there was confusion about this, what this meant, and the disciples asked Jesus about it, and he gives the answer, the explanation of the parable, beginning in verse 18. He says, Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. So whenever you preach the gospel, there will be people where it completely goes over their heads or they just flat out reject the truth. Say, I don't want it, I'm not interested, thanks, but no thanks. Jesus says, in that instance, it's like it's falling on hard soil. There's no receptivity to it. And Satan immediately comes like a bird and snatches up that seed and it's gone. It's, it's just hardened and, and there's no perceptible change even to the person. They come in hard, they leave hard. We all know that type of person. We've, in, we've encountered that type of person. But what's scary are the next two soils. The next two soils. You have a rocky soil and a thorny soil. What's that? Verse 20. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. So they're skipping down the aisle. They're excited. They're all in for Jesus. They put on their WWJD bracelets. Y'all remember those things? They, they put on their Jesus t-shirt. They go get DC Talks Jesus freaks, you know. We're, we're, we're in it for Jesus. Yet, he has no root in himself, but endures for a while, and when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. Then you have the thorny soil. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. In other words, worldliness. Uh, they, they profess Christ, but then their cares for the world, maybe pleasing a husband or spouse or the pursuit of wealth, whatever it is, chokes out the word, and it proves unfruitful. So here's the question. Are these two soils Christians or unbelievers? Well, Jesus tells us, Matthew chapter 7, you will know them by their fruits. 
you will know them by their fruits. Do they ever produce fruit? No, they do not. The good soil, Jesus says, next verse, produces what? Grain, fruit. That is saving faith. The soil that's rocky and the soil that is thorny looks like a Christian for a while, but then they leave, they depart, they show that they were never true Christians to begin with. The true Christian always produces fruit. Speaking of fruit, I want you to turn real quickly to John 15. My Arminian friends, when I was over in Ukraine, John 15 is the passage they took me to. This is the passage they danced on. They thought that they had pulled my jacket over my head. They thought that they had gotten me when they turned to John 15. And they say, okay, here's this whole uh, passage about abiding in Christ and about bearing fruit. And they said, here, here's a verse that teaches that you can lose your salvation. Look at verse two. Every branch in me. Now look, this, this branch is in Christ, they said, that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. So there's some branches that he takes away. What happens to those branches? Verse six, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. The burning represents judgment. So you see, there it is. The, the apostate is somebody that was a branch that had faith and now they are taken away and thrown into the fire of judgment. Now, here's the thing. Jesus is making a distinction here that a true branch, which is connected to the vine and has the sustenance of the vine flowing into the branch, the genuine branch always produces the fruit. How do I know this? Because Jesus says this explicitly. Look at verse eight. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and look at the word and so prove to be my disciples and so show to be my disciples. The fruit proves that you are the genuine branch. Those that never produce fruit are the same as the professors in Matthew 13. They're the same as the thorny soil and the rocky soil. Another important verse, I'm just gonna have you turn there because I want you to know this verse and, and see it, is in 1 John chapter two. 1 John chapter two. Verse 19. John says, what about the apostate? What about the professor? They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, if they'd been genuine Christians, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not 
of us. So the apostasy, John says, is not evidence of losing your salvation. It's evidence that you never had salvation to begin with. That's what John says. I think it's so clear. Fourth question. What is the best passage to teach the perseverance of the saints? If you were to sit down in the coffee shop and somebody were to ask you, show me the doctrine of perseverance. Can you show it to me? What is the best passage to go to? Well, the best passage is Romans chapter 8. And this is where we're going to end. Romans chapter 8. Because what Paul is outlining in Romans 8 is the security of the believer, the perseverance of the saints. Because he's, he's talking about assurance of salvation. How can you know, Christian, that you are a Christian, and how can you know that you are eternally secure? How can you know these things? Well, he talks about the most sure way to know that you are indeed a real Christian is by the internal witness of the Holy Spirit. That's the most sure way. You can look at the fruit in your life, you can look at a profession of faith, but the most sure way is the internal witness of the Spirit, Romans 8, 14. All who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. That is the highest form of assurance of salvation. So if you know that you're a Christian, do I believe? Yes, I do. Do I see fruit in my life? Lord willing, yes, I do. Have I experienced the internal witness of the Holy Spirit? Have I been baptized by the Holy Spirit? Yes, I have. Okay, I know I am a Christian. Now, knowing that I am a Christian, is it possible for me to lose my salvation? No, it's not. Look how Paul explains it. I'm gonna give you six arguments very quickly that Paul uses to demonstrate that you as the Christian cannot lose your salvation, beginning in verse 28. First argument, God's sovereignty and salvation. First argument that Paul uses is God's sovereignty in salvation. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Who is the one who loves God? That is the Christian. What does Paul say is true of the Christian in the sovereignty of God? That God works all things sovereignly, providentially. God works all things in your life together for your good in his sovereign hand. Is losing your salvation for your good? I don't think so. So either God is not God and you can lose your salvation, but both of those statements can't be true at the same time. Because if God is God and he is working all things together for good, for your good, then you could never lose your salvation. Look at verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? If God's sovereign, and if God's working all things together for good in my life, 
then how in the world could I ever lose my salvation? How in the world could I ever fall away? Simply will not happen because God is sovereign. The sovereignty of God is but the pillow that I sleep on. I bank everything on the sovereignty of God. That God really is working all things together for good. And that God would never allow one of his children to lose her salvation, his salvation. Second, second argument Paul uses is the logic of salvation. The logic of salvation. Romans 8.29 begins what is called the golden chain of salvation. Notice that it is the same group of people that Paul describes from beginning to end. The word those refers to the same people. Those whom he foreknew. That means those whom he foreloved. He predestined to be conformed to the image of a son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Same group. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also what? Glorified. That's, that, that's the that's the final destination, is glorification. 1 Corinthians 15, a resurrection body. And the those are the same that he foreknew in the beginning that are glorified in the end. There's not one exception. Not one exception. Salvation begins and ends with God. And therefore, not one is lost. Notice also, what he says, those whom he foreknew, he predestined, and what did he predestine us to? To be conformed to the image of his son. Conformed to the image of his son. So God, the Holy Spirit, is working in your life to conform you more and more to the image of Jesus Christ so that we could be Christ's brother, that he's the firstborn among many brothers. Uh, you don't wake up someday and say, okay, now I'm no longer conformed to the image of his son. It doesn't work like that. If he was conforming me yesterday, he's conforming me today, he's conforming me tomorrow. He, he will glorify me ultimately in the end. Do you see the logic here? It's crystal clear. Those whom he foreknew he glorifies. So that was the second argument. So the first, God's sovereignty and salvation. Second, the logic of salvation. The third is the effectual nature of Christ's death. Look at verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? In other words, he says, look, if Jesus Christ died for you, then you need to know that his atonement is effectual. Did Jesus die for you or did he not? You remember Jaquan talked about particular redemption two weeks ago. If Jesus' death is effectual and he died for you, then how could you lose your salvation? Losing your salvation would mean that it wasn't truly effectual, that his blood did not have power, 
His life and death did not have power. We read this morning Isaiah 53, 5. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. Do we wake up someday and all of a sudden the chastisement no longer brings us peace? No, we do not. The chastisement always brings peace. The piercing always brings forgiveness. John says, Revelation 5, 9, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. So Jesus Christ ransomed a specific group of people from every nation under the earth. If you're ransomed, can you become unransomed? Does the devil have some sort of device where he can go back to the cross or the empty tomb and, and do some sort of Yahtzee role and get you. No, he cannot. Once Christ ransoms you, it's a done deal. It was finished at the cross. That's what Jesus said. All that remains is for the Holy Spirit to apply what he purchased in your life. That's all that remains. I was saved at Calvary, but I was saved when I believed and it was applied to me by the Holy Spirit. But that was just the application of what already happened 2,000 years ago. But if it happened 2,000 years ago and Christ purchased you, he's not gonna barter you away. That would spurn the cross. I mean, you can go through the New Testament. Galatians 1.4, Christ gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of God. Christ gave himself so that you're delivered. You don't wake up, no longer delivered. Once you're delivered, you're always delivered. It's done, it's finished. Fourth, justification cannot be undone. So first, God's sovereignty and salvation. Second, the logic of salvation. Third, the effectual nature of Christ's death. Fourth, justification cannot be undone. Look at verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Therefore, who is to condemn? That word justifies speaks of the legal declaration that God makes about you. When you trust in Christ in faith, you are united to him so that his righteousness becomes yours and all of your sin is taken away. And God declares in a legal way that you are righteous in him. And once that declaration takes place, it is a declaration for all time. It's, it's a declaration regarding not only your past sins, not only your present sins, but your future sins. It's not that I'm justified today and next month I will no longer be justified. Once I'm justified, I am always justified. God has spoken. Paul says, having been justified by faith, we have present tense peace with God. You, you live in peace with God because of justification. That doesn't mean we always walk in fellowship with God. We can, we can allow sin to creep in and not walk in fellowship with God, but we always have peace with God because of our justification that we have been declared righteous. That legal declaration, Paul is saying, cannot be reversed. 
Fifth, fifth argument why the Christian can't lose their salvation is Christ's intercession for us. Christ's intercession for us. So first, God's sovereignty and salvation. Two, the logic of salvation. Three, the effectual nature of Christ's death. Fourth, justification cannot be undone. And fifth, Christ's intercession for us. Look at verse 34. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Christ is interceding for the true Christian. And Paul argues from the least to the greatest here. He says, look, if Jesus Christ died for you and then was raised, more than that, and now he's at the right hand of God, now he's alive, now he's at the right hand of the Father, and he's interceding for you. Do you think it's possible that you could lose your salvation if Christ is praying for you? Do you think that's possible? Do you think that God the Father answers the prayers of God the Son? You won't find one instance in the New Testament where God the Father does not answer the prayers of God the Son. He always answers those prayers. And Paul says, Jesus Christ is interceding for you. So if Jesus Christ, who died for you, is now interceding for you, then there's no possibility that we could lose our salvation. Paul says in Romans 5.10, just three chapters earlier, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death, death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Jesus Christ is in heaven right now, right now as you're sitting there, and he's praying for you. He's praying for you. That's what he's doing. He's interceding for you. He's interceding for you while you sleep. He's interceding for you when you wake up and get your coffee. He's interceding for you while you're helping your kids with homework. He's constantly interceding for you. And if he's interceding and saying, keep them, keep them, keep them, there's no possible way that in your strength you could wander away. McShane said, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. But he is praying for me. And so the distance makes no difference. He is praying for you. Therefore, you cannot forfeit your salvation. John, 1 John 2, 1, jot that down. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Six and finally, the love of God. This is the penultimate, or I should say ultimate reason why you will not lose your salvation, the love of God. Skip down to verse 37. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. Does a conqueror lose, bow out? No, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What Paul is doing at the end of Romans chapter eight is he's speaking in hyperbole. He's saying, take anything that you can think of. 
and nothing that you could possibly think of could separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus if you're a Christian. Nothing. Height nor depth. You go to the bottom of the, of the, uh, of the uh, trenches of the ocean where the Titanic is. You go to the bottom of the depths of the ocean. You go up to the moon. There's nowhere that you can go and nothing in between that can separate you from the love of God. Talks about rulers and powers. There's no angel. There's no spiritual force. There's no demon. Not even Satan is strong enough to separate you from the love of God. Nothing in all creation, neither death or life itself, nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And that includes you. That includes you. So when you see all this, these truths that God shows us in Romans chapter 8, and the promises that he is, as we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, that he is at work within us, it's such a warm blanket for the Christian. Every Christian will persevere to the end by God's grace. Every Christian will say, like Paul, I have fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. You will keep going. You will reach the end where you hear, well done, good and faithful servant. And it is because of the absolute, stunning, wonderful, majestic grace of God. Last question. What are the applications of this doctrine? What are the applications of this doctrine? First, first, this is the key question. If I know that every Christian will persevere to the end and every Christian is eternally secure, then the first question that we have to answer for ourselves is this, am I really a Christian? Am I really a Christian? That's the first question. Because if I know that I'm a Christian, if I know that I have believed in him, then I know that I have eternal life and nothing can take it away. And I mentioned earlier, there's three primary ways that you can know. One, the promise of God. God promises that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So ask, have I genuinely and truly called upon God from the heart? Second, does my life bear fruit in keeping with repentance? Is the fruit of the Holy Spirit present? Is the fruit of the kingdom present? Is the conduct of my life a habit of righteousness or is it a habit of sinning? And then third, have I experienced the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the internal witness of the Holy Spirit? Paul says that everyone who believes is baptized in the Holy Spirit. Do you sense the Holy Spirit convicting you of sin? Do you sense the Holy Spirit pressing upon you the word of God? When you're in the supermarket line and a circumstance happens in front of you, does the Holy Spirit bring to bear scripture in your mind? As you're reading your Bible and you're reading about Christ, does your heart become strangely warmed as you're thinking about your Savior? That's all work of the Holy Spirit. So if you know that you're a Christian, then you can know, okay, I will persevere to the end. And every single day I wake up, 
I don't worry about that. I don't worry about that. And that's second, second point of application. Trust in God's sovereign hand to keep you. Every single day, trust in the sovereign hand of God to keep you. He is mightier than anything in the world. Trust that he will keep you. And what this does is, is it pushes the anxiety away. We're not to be anxious for anything. We're to trust God for everything, including our salvation and including our continued faith. So you don't need to be worrying, okay, in five years, am I going to keep on believing? What am I, in five years, am I gonna jettison this whole thing? You don't, need to, you don't need to go there. You don't. In fact, if you do go there, it means that you're not trusting in God. If God promises to keep you, guess what? God always keeps his promises. He's going to keep you. Third, praise God that he keeps you and that your salvation is assured. Praise God. As we, as we started with this whole series, sola deo gloria, sola gratia, salvation is of the Lord, and it's all of grace. It's all of grace. Spurgeon had a, a, a book come out, All of Grace, describing the Christian ministry. And that's such a wonderful phrase. It truly is all of grace. And when you get that, one, it humbles you, but it causes you to look up and say, praise be to God for this glorious salvation that I have believed because of grace, I am believing because of grace, and I will be believing because of grace, and my future destiny in heaven is completely assured. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these truths, this this amazing doctrine of perseverance of the saints. And we pray, Lord, that we would work out our salvation with fear and trembling, all the while knowing that you are keeping and preserving us. That you, through your sovereign hand, sustain us. Through Christ's death on the cross, our salvation was completed and will always be completed that once we are justified, we will always be justified, that there's never a moment that Christ is not interceding for us. And we thank you, Lord, for your love, your love that has already been demonstrated at the cross, which is enduring every single day. Lord, we pray that we would glorify you and honor you with our lives because of these great graces and mercies that you've given us. In Christ's name, amen. And you are dismissed. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, information, and events, check out our website at capitalcommunitychurch.com.